It's great to be back at Ridley and in chapel after my seven months away. This is a series of four uh, sermons now and then three or four in first semester next year, helping us to think about what worship is, a great way to start our semester together. So it was a few years back and we had at Ridley a preaching conference with Don Carson as our guest. We went to chapel, as you did, to break the morning up. And the Ridley student began the service in chapel with representatives from all around Australia and beyond saying, welcome to worship this morning. Well, it was an innocuous kind of comment, but at morning tea it created an enormous debate. For there were some in our gathering who argued that worship is not about singing or joining together in chapel or church, but worship is about what you do every day of your life. I did suggest to some of the people who are raising this question that the big issue in Melbourne is not the definition of worship, but whether Jesus is God or not, and (laughs) tried to help people kind of uh, focus just a little. But it does raise a serious question Is worship singing or serving? Is it adoration or action? And in this brief series, every week under a a particular metaphor, I want to help us refresh our thinking about worship, to help us think theologically about worship, because I think we can think easily about the cross theologically or Christian discipleship theologically, but I think we struggle to understand worship theologically. And I want us to help see the importance of chapel to the life of the college. So we're going to Romans chapter 1. Paul makes clear in Romans 1, the beginning of this extraordinary letter, that if we want to get Christian life right... We've got to get worship right. It's one of the most foundational challenges in our lives. And so we go straight to verse 25. They exchange, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Wrong worship is focusing on the creature. Right worship is focusing on the Creator. This is the heart of what I want to speak about this morning. Indeed, it opens up the big question in Romans, are we worshipping right? It's interesting in Romans chapter 1 that Paul is effectively giving us a running commentary on Genesis chapter 1. We see in the vocabulary, but also in the big ideas, how Paul is trying to rethink what the purposes of the creation are. He wants us to know, like Genesis 1 teaches, that God is a God who reveals and speaks. So we see this in verse 16. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of God for salvation. For in it, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Or in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Or in verse 19, whatever God has revealed has been made plain to us. God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of the world, verse 20, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. God has communicated ably. We've understood from what he has made. So we are without excuse. God reveals... But we suppress. In fact, you can't suppress unless God had previously revealed, right? Wrong worship is not just about wrong practices, dull singing or tedious prayers or good singing and good prayers. Wrong worship is fundamentally a matter of the heart. It's a deep, deep suppression of truth, a denial of reality. The outward ceremonies might or might not tell us what's going on in our heart. We have to be careful at thinking of worship in terms of what we see or hear. Luther comments about those he was in debate with, or perhaps... A stronger word than debate is appropriate. These wretched men think that building up the church consists of the introduction of some sort of new ceremonies. They don't realise that building up the church means to lead consciences from doubt and murmuring to faith, to knowledge, to certainty. He's looking past the ceremonies and asking questions about faith and knowledge and assurance. We suppress the truth. There's a deep, deep problem. Because you know that suppressing the truth is a pretty short-term strategy. No matter how you try and suppress, keep it down, it will come out, it will squeeze its way out somehow. No matter how much air you pump into a tyre, if there's the smallest hole, the air will find its way out. You can't just keep suppressing the truth. Reality bites in the end. So Paul advises us in Romans 1 that actually wrong worship is not just suppression of the truth, though it starts there. It's not just intellectual denial. We actually swap our devotion. We don't just suppress the truth. We swap our devotion as well. Though we see this in uh, verse 20, 21. 21. For although they knew God, they tried suppressing the truth, but it didn't work. They knew God, although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they actually were fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We've exchanged truth for a lie. Though we knew God, we didn't glorify him. We didn't thank him. In our hearts and minds, we were dulled and darkened. We actually became fools. Picking up the language of Genesis 3, right? Wanting to become wise, human beings in sinning, exchanging God's word for their trust in themselves, became fools instead. We've exchanged glory for images of this world. And surprisingly, or perhaps foolishly, in verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human beings. Human beings already are images. But we make images of images. It's like making a photocopy of a photocopy. You, you kind of lose precision. You lose the clarity every time you try and make an image and use that instead of turning to God himself. And we're meant to be set over the world in dominion. And now we start worshipping the things of this world, mortal human beings or birds and animals and reptiles, that we place them over us. Actually, God's given us dominion to serve the world under him. Some years back, I visited a temple in Rajasthan in northwest India Uh, that was dedicated to rats. It's the Rat Temple of Bikaner. Uh, Rats are an incarnation of Ganesh, the elephant god. But in this particular temple, rats were treated as royalty. There were some thousands and thousands of them. They put out bowls for them to drink milk. As you enter the temple, you have to take off your shoes because it's a sacred place, though having rats scuppering over your bare feet just kind of drove me crazy. There were wire, wire lines overhead and the rats would kind of make their way along the lines. So you're all the time thinking that every pigeon that comes down to eat some of the food on the ground is another rat that's falling on your head. You think, how ridiculous. How ridiculous to elevate rats to something that's worthy of our honour and praise to offer sacrifices to something that we would commonly think was the lowest of the low. But in the West we do it too. We might not set up a temple to rats, but we do pursue the seductive ideal of the perfect body. There's even a TV show I discovered called, not that I've watched it, but called, <laughs> called The Perfect Body. We do set up an ideal and worship that, though we have a beautiful picture of the image of God in others without it. Or it might just be that in the West, we simply make our relationships replace the Lord. Listen to these words by Jane Eyre. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world and more than the world. He was almost my hope of heaven. 
He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature of whom I had made an idol. Charlotte Bronte, of course, her father was an Anglican vicar, so she knew the lessons from Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth and we swap God's glory for mortal uh, images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and images uh, and animals and reptiles. And it's very dangerous. Wrong worship, which goes to the heart of the enticements of the creation, is very dangerous for us. God still is active and revealing, but now towards those who suppress the truth and who swap his glory, he reveals his wrath and gives us over to our desires, having to bear the consequences. We suppress and swap And Calvin says the outcome is pollution and punishment. We become like the things we worship. What an awful, awful outcome that is. Why was there the need for a reformation? Well, commonly, we'd argue it's because the medieval church got doctrine wrong. There's something in that. But at the heart of the Reformation was the desire to renew or reform worship. For the late medieval church had so concentrated its worship in material things or material capacity of the priests, for example, that worship had lost its sense of self. People were seeking power in objects or human ability, worshipping the creature rather than the creator. One of the leading Swiss reformers, Pharrell, as a kid, was taken to a local shrine where there was a cross on the wall with a crucifix on it. And he was told by the priest that this cross, this crucifix, controls the weather in France. This is what the priest would say to those who came to visit the shrine. Whenever the devil sends hail and thunder, this crucifix moves so violently that one would think it wanted to get loose from the cross to go running after the devil. And all the while, this little crucifix keeps throwing out sparks of fire against the storm. Were it not for this crucifix, the whole country would be swept bare. Rejecting the power of images was part of the Reformation agenda. It's very easy to see something and see it as having power, ignoring the source of all life. Someone said to me a few years back, wouldn't it be great, Reese, if we could turn back the clock and worship again like they did in the late medieval world? My response was to say, what's so attractive about superstition? I don't think that's where I want to go. For true worship is not trying to claim power through the physical around us. True worship is giving up our power 
True worship is learning to be powerless. True worship is learning to be the creature before the mighty creator. And we have to learn to worship. Worship doesn't come easily. Worship is something we have to practice. It goes against every fibre in our being to practice being the creator, to practice being the creature and recognising the authority of the creator. A friend of mine uh, in Sydney has some severe learning difficulties, greatly focused in on himself uh, through really awful childhood experiences. He was adopted by some friends of mine and they weren't ever quite sure what kind of emotional, spiritual life he grew up to have. But some years after he'd come to live with them, they were driving over the Gladesville Bridge and it was late afternoon, so the sun was setting and Sean cried out in ways that his mum and dad had never heard him say, Oh, how wonderful, look at the sunset! And Ben Emma began to cry. For Sean had learned how to worship. He'd learned to look outside of his own world and to see something beautiful given to him as a gift. A gift from the Creator. So why do we come to chapel? What are we doing here each week? Or what are you doing in your Sunday worship? It's very simple. You're learning to be dependent. You ought not to be coming to church or to chapel to feel powerful. Churches that encourage their people through their worship to feel powerful, I think, have misunderstood something profoundly. Now, worship is fundamentally about learning to be dependent to give up our claims on power and to enjoy being a creature again. Not pretending that we have to be the creator as well. Worship's liberation. It's freedom from our self-obsessions. We can get our mind on God and track with his will and his ways. It's a relief to leave a service of worship and think, I don't have to control the world. Why songs, sacraments, sermons and supplications? Well, these are all just very particular strategies to help us get our minds off ourself so that we can be more generous and godly in the world. Why come to chapel each day? Why go to church on Sundays? Well, it might not be that you like the music. It might be that you could hear a better sermon somewhere else, but that's not the point. Whatever is dished up, whatever is offered, whatever you experience, it's an opportunity for learning dependence, to be the creature and practice being focused on God. Why go to church? Why come to chapel? Well, in places like this, we regularly learn to reorient our lives to the true north. Worship is a compass 
Worship is a compass that points us back to God, the Creator, and helps us thereby become more human as we learn to be what we were created to be. There's a deep, deep spiritual problem. We've suppressed the truth and we've swapped the glory of God for things of this world. But there's also a profound solution. For the Son of God gave up his glory and took on human likeness, the form of a human being, so that when we worship him, God in the flesh, we find our true north and amazingly become ourselves the glory of God. We are glorified with Christ eternally. What's my basic definition of worship? It's a God-focused heart. Is worship for Sunday or for every day? Yes.